Hi, it's Lou. I just wanted to let you know what's new and what's still around for Square Pegs in 2022. The Patreon membership is still up and running. The address for that is patreon.com forward slash square peg round hole. And don't forget that W for the word hole. I really appreciate any contribution that anyone can provide to help me to keep this podcast going and to pay for some of the ongoing costs associated with it. It's very, very much appreciated. So thank you so much to my Patreon members as always. Something I did develop at the end of last year was a new website. On that website, there are podcast episodes, transcripts, there's a huge resource library, there's news and information on advocacy projects. The address for the website is squarepegroundhole.com.au. Many people know I have two Facebook groups or pages. There's a public page and there's a closed group. Please feel free to apply to join the closed group. It's where we discuss a lot of the episodes and some of the advocacy work that we're working on. And I just finally wanted to say it is my only ambition to speak on behalf of parents when I speak. I will never speak on behalf of any group to which I cannot represent with lived experience. I don't speak on behalf of neurodivergent people. However, I am very happy to bring neurodivergent people along to discussions and to share with us all. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you find it helpful. Thank you. I would like to acknowledge that this podcast meeting is being held on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to Elders, both past, present and future, and to welcome you to this new episode for podcast Square Peg Round Hole. Welcome to Square Peg Round Hole, the podcast where we discuss diversity and how to embrace our neurodivergent kids at home, at school and in the workplace. It's your host here, Lou. Today I want to do something different. This guest that we have today is Peter Hutton and he has inspired me more than I ever could have imagined. Peter is one of the most passionate, innovative, clever, articulate people I've spoken to in a long time. Peter is an educator. He is obsessed with education and he really, truly understands what needs to happen to the Australian education system to make it inclusive, accepting and able to support and provide access to education for neurodivergent and all students. This interview you're about to listen to today Well, you will hear me. You will hear my reactions to what Peter has to say. I hope that you will also feel that you cannot just sit and listen to Peter and I discussing these issues, to hear Peter discussing his obvious ability to understand what needs to happen, the innovative approach that he and the Future Schools Alliance have towards education, and The fact that he's literally sitting there waiting to do it and he's going to do it. I hope that you can't just sit there and listen to Peter's readiness to act without actually doing something. We as a community, especially us, especially parents and teachers who care about neurodivergent children and what is happening with the current system, the struggles, the exclusions, the segregation, and all because of an old-fashioned, outdated system that no longer works and is no longer fit for purpose. We can make something happen here, and you will hear in the discussion that Peter and I have that we know what needs to be done. Please, please see what you can do after you listen to this. Contact me, join the Facebook group, subscribe, share, tell people about the podcast because the more people that hear this podcast and hear these sorts of discussions, the more likely we are to get the politicians to take notice because they are the ones who can do something about this.
do whatever it takes to get involved. We can make this happen. We can make it happen faster than we ever dreamed it would. I'm not going to read out Peter's CV. I'm not going to tell you all the background on Peter. Peter can speak for himself. So let's listen to Peter. He really knows. Welcome to the podcast, Peter Hutton. Thank you so much, Louise. It's great to be here. Thank you for being here. I I nearly called you Peter Dutton. (laughs) I have had that happen once at a large event and I had to duck behind the pulpit to avoid shoes being thrown at me. (laughs) I bet you did. (laughs) For people who don't know, he is what is he our minister of, Peter Dutton? Uh, He he was minister for defence, I think, at the time. Oh, yes, right. (laughs) Even more reason to duck away. Okay, so you're not Peter Dutton, you're Peter Hutton, and I'm very excited that you're here. Let's start straight away with the icebreaker questions because we're going to hear more about you as we go through. So, Peter, the first question I have for you is, Peter, what is your favourite animal and why is that your favourite animal? Well, Louise, if you've done your homework, you know that I'm a rule breaker and so I've just blatantly ignored that question because I don't have (laughs) a favourite animal. Uh, but I, I, guess I did what, do some homework, but I didn't expect that answer. <laughs> it's certainly not in the first uh, two minutes of, of the recording, but, um, <laughs> you know, I don't have a favourite animal. Um, okay. I don't have many other interests either. I have no favourite colour. I probably do have a favourite wine. But I, I guess it, by way of introduction, I love my family deeply. We have a farm that I'm required to mow on the odd occasion. And other than that, I just do education. I get up thinking about education. I go to bed thinking about education. I dream about education. And I know that makes me sound incredibly narrow, but it's it's just it's just me. My 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 kids have grown up and left home. So education right. is my focus. It's so interesting because even though I'm not a teacher, I, I have also found myself in a very similar predicament. And I do often think very much around education, but specifically around our kids. And neurodivergent kids who are having a very challenging time in education. So I can't wait to talk to you more about that. I do have another question, but maybe you're going to tell me you don't want to answer that as well. But it was going to be, it's a little bit more serious. And maybe I think I already know what the answer is. But the question is, if there was one thing you could change in the world, what would it be and why? Again, I'm probably going to go the slight variation. Um, The clear answer is the education system. Uh, why? Because it's unjust. Uh, it harms people, chews up a ridiculously inordinate amount of resources for very uh, minimal positive output and basically teaches young people the wrong skills to thrive in the world. So I think that would be the thing that I would change. Yeah. The biggest way to change that would be to change the uh, views of politicians who are seemingly leading the education agenda at the moment. On a bigger picture, I guess, and this is quite topical, if I could do away with one thing, it would be war, uh, and that's because it's futile, ego-driven by people who don't suffer the direct consequences of their decisions. Of course, yeah. I'll let you have that second one because I, I totally agree with that too, of course. Very generous. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, it's a very sad time in the world right now um, for lots of reasons. Okay, so let's get into it. Let's um, have a bit more of a chat about you and you've mentioned your family already, but can you tell us a bit more about yourself and sort of what brought you here to what you're doing today and if you have any connection to the square peg trying to fit into the round hole? Certainly. Difficult to know where to go back to. Uh, School was largely a misery for me. I was doing pretty well until they introduced this thing called reading and at that point I quickly realised that I couldn't do things that some other students who I, you know, like I think we, you know, we often sort of compare ourselves to others, grade ourselves to others, and kids who I knew that I was perhaps brighter than were doing things with with minimal effort that I found just absolutely torturous. And from that point on, school pretty much became an act of ritualised humiliation day after day. I found coping mechanisms, and that included everything from cheating on tests, getting other students to complete my assignment work, uh, trying to trying to vary the assessment so that it fitted in more with my skill set. Yeah, so it was all in all a pretty uh, horrible time and I always swore that I would never 
return to education the day I left the, the gates, but then found myself in a position where I wanted to, uh, I'd had a, a building business in the late 80s, which had you know made a ridiculous amount of money. Then we had a recession in the late 80s where I lost everything and I decided that I wanted to commit my life to something where you did something different every day, uh, that you worked with people and you did, you know, you contributed positively to the world and education was one of those options. I started doing teaching rounds essentially as a PE teacher and never looked back. I still love it to this day. Mm, wow, what a turnaround. That's, that's great. It's very interesting you should say that about dyslexia as well. I had another guest on the podcast uh, at the end of last year who's also dyslexic and he explained a very similar experience, especially as he got up into high school, of just this total disengagement because of this, this barrier that was never removed and just, you know, the path that it can take you on and then come back around in full circle to to doing something positive with that it's a, it's a life experience interesting yeah look it, it is it is interesting i i think when you are a dyslexic and like let's face it there are there are you know there are as many different types of dyslexia as as there are different types of dyslexic brains if you will like there you know there's this misunderstanding that there's you know huge commonalities they're actually very very you know highly variable but the masking and the and the and the coping mechanisms are very similar. So yes, I can right. I'm, I'm very good at diagnosing, you know, unqualified as I am, but I can, you know, I've got a almost 100% strike rate in in identifying dyslexic students in particular. But but generally there's one of two reactions and one is to disengage and just uh, opt out, you know, and that can be of education, but it can be out of employment. You know, we know that almost 50% of the prison population are dyslexic and that's not illiterate. I'm actually talking about being dyslexic, but they're also three times more overrepresented in the entrepreneurial, in the area of entrepreneurism. And so I, I would contend that they're not disengaged. They're hugely engaged in avoiding detection when they're at school to developing right. coping mechanisms, um, ways around problems. And that's why they're set up so ideally to enter into things like entrepreneurship because they've been problem solving basically since the age when they started reading. God, we could do a whole podcast on that. So, Peter, today I um, decided to break up our chat into sort of three key areas. I've called them advocacy, talking a bit more about you and your ideas and your experiences, and then a bit more about the Future Schools Alliance. I'll have some questions for you about that. So we'll start with advocacy, which is not usually the way that I do it, but I wanted to talk about this with you because I can already hear with your answers so far that you're, you're, in, you're interested in this and you're motivated by it. So my second question for you is, as you know, this podcast is about embracing neurodiversity and improving outcomes for neurodivergent young people. And school is the first place that young neurodivergent people experience ableism, exclusion, segregation, and can often lead to a lifetime of disengagement and poor outcomes. In your opinion and from the evidence, why is that happening? I guess primarily because the education system is incredibly resistant to change and it was never designed to allow everybody to be successful. It was essentially a sorting mechanism for those that could do the skills that were desired by industry at the time, you know, largely literacy and numeracy, but also taught you, you were having a large proportion of the population moving from the country and in an agrarian lifestyle, working on farms, and all of a sudden they, they were working on assembly lines. Now, you know, for those of us who have a farm, you know, Bunnings is not next door and you're often forced to problem solve in unique ways. When you're working on a production line, that's disastrous. You can't have people, you know, varying or, you know, problem solving on the fly. And so they actually had to teach compliance. And so our education system, if you go back and look at the actual foundations of it, was designed to teach compliance and obedience to authority and it just unfortunately hasn't changed you know as we've moved forwards mm, there's, there's very reasons rigid. it is very rigid and look the reason why it hasn't changed is it's actually serving people who are in positions of influence and power because you know if you've got social capital and financial capital you will continue to succeed in the current model and you know if you 
if you want to look conspiratorial at, at it, it, it allows people who aren't, don't come from those positions of privilege to sort of be swayed by the argument that, that those who have succeeded are in some way superior to them. And then, you know, you just cop it because, you know, clearly they've succeeded at school, whereas, whereas you haven't. So there's not much motivation to actually change the system from those from those who are running society and and the other thing is even for those that run schools like the majority of teachers and principals were successes within the system so they don't see that there was any difficulty with it so it's only those proportion and it look it's it's a quite significant proportion i, I would sort of in most groups put it at about 20 percent but you know to be honest they're the teachers that the kids love because they understand that school is not designed for everybody to be a winner it's interesting because we often find ourselves as parents we're, we're so frustrated but we do not want to get the teachers or par- uh, principals offside you know we want to support them to help them to do a better job so it's a fine line that we walk and actually that's my second question for you is in regards to that and you started to sort of head down that path so I was going to ask you further about like that this podcast community that I have we are starting to become much more involved in advocacy on behalf of the students however there is a lot of opposition from the teachers and principals unions with a lot of the work that's the attempts that are being made. So they, they often cite lack of resources and workplace safety concerns, threats of industrial action when reforms are attempted by governments, particularly we've seen this recently here in New South Wales. So I guess my question to you is what advice do you have to principals but also to parents trying to advocate for education reform in this sort of environment where we're divided and we can't seem to come together to put the students first. Such an such a, an interesting question. It was interesting who you left out of that equation. Who did I leave out? The students. Yeah. So, what advice would you have for principals and parents? And uh, you know, I guess it's a reflective of my mentality, and I'm in no ways judging you for that, because we we just assume that everything's about you know the people that run the place, the teachers, and it's about the parents who influence. But you know. In working with many young people who are neurodiverse or or have a you know indeed a physical disability, one of the things that I often say to parents is, you need to be a huge advocate for the young person, generally up until the age of, of or through primary school, but from that point on, it is equally important that you support the young person to self advocate, because Absolutely. I have seen so many examples where you know like to be honest and. You know, I know your listeners will relate to this where they feel like they're being judged as the pushy parent or the tiger parent or, you know, like they're, you know, they're they're regarded uh, not in a positive way by school. And, you know, like even as somebody who's neurodiverse myself, you can see that. But I've often said to parents, try and try and morph that passion that you have for changing the system directly and standing up for your young person's rights to supporting them to self-advocate because I can tell you what, you know, you can you can fob off a parent, okay, not that you should but you can. It's very difficult for a principal or a teacher to fob off a young person who's asking for support. Well, I can tell you right now, my son just recently, um, and I wrote a blog about this, my son just recently wrote a letter to his teacher. He had a, it turned out, neurodivergent teacher which was just it was there was so much irony and everything who asked all the students to write a a letter introducing themselves because they didn't know each other and he wrote this letter that advocated for his needs and and um yes that everyone just stopped and so we do talk a lot as a parent group about self-advocacy especially of the older kids a hundred percent a hundred percent. I guess it's just, and we are all trying to do that to get our kids to speak up for themselves. It's just also so frustrating to see that the groups that we think a lot of the reforms can help go against, you know, go against those reforms. And so we feel there's blocks and bar- barricades to what we're trying to achieve together. Please, please don't, please don't think I'm sending out a message that we should stop advocating and then, you know, like from, you know, year no, seven leave it to young yeah. people because you know, literally that won't, that won't work. But just keep in mind that 
you know, at the end of the day, this young person is going to have to self-advocate potentially with an employer. They're going to have to negotiate with a partner, all of these things. So it is important to build up those those skills. The, the other thing is, look, you know, people say is dyslexia a disability or is it, you know, like a difficulty? Well, it, it's certainly pretty difficult to live with, but there's no doubt that it falls. I'm just talking about dyslexia in this case. That, that it falls under the, you know, the, the tag of a, of a recognised disability. And I, I encourage young people to embrace that tag because it offers them legal protections. You know, like, I don't really care what the teachers union, you know, says about this or uh, staff in schools. There's a legal requirement to accommodate disability. And, you know, it, it's not an opinion. They, they have to, you know, we wouldn't, you know, we've thank goodness moved on from the days where, you know, somebody in a, in a wheelchair, and I, I think there's even still, you know, dramatic room to go in that, but that's, that's seen, you know, nobody would say, oh, look, you know, we're not having ramps in there. And yet, exactly. you know, this is, yeah. you know, fairly minor accommodation. I think, I think we, we should not hesitate to pull the disability card and if needs be, take them to through the dis. Uh, disability discrimination process well that's what we're trying to do we just keep going <laughs> it's a it's it's hard but yeah we get we you know we're starting to to make some progress I guess I was going to ask you actually how has your own neurodivergence in- influenced you you've mentioned it quite a few times like ha- has this do you think this this is what's got you to where you are today in terms of driving you forward it, look, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Like if you actually look at not only recognised dyslexics today but look back in history because, you know, it wasn't a condition you could apparently rely on in the old days, there are certain telltale signs in all, like an incredible amount of people who have changed the world in markedly important ways. Like I'm not talking just slight improvements or capable leaders but if you talk about people who through their inventions or through their thoughts have changed the world so many of them display strongly dyslexic traits and then that's true of some of the other neurodiverse conditions as well absolutely yeah you just mentioned elon musk to me before yeah elon musk <laughs> there's just you know, so many people uh, bill, yeah. bill gates is now out and proud as a dyslexic it really is remarkable so, frankly i wonder what you neuro normal neurotypical people are doing because um, we're, we're you know we we don't succeed in school but we're certainly pulling our weight moving society forward so yeah I, I think it I think it has helped me it was very difficult in those early days because I was petrified of writing on a whiteboard because I knew that my spelling would be all over the shop and you know cause for laughter and yes I did all of those things I was just testing you out now come and correct the the mistakes on the board but you can only do that so many times really and you know so I was out of the classroom basically as soon as I could and so within five years I was an assistant principal and I was then in the position where I could have a personal assistant who I confided my my dyslexia in and said look you're responsible for making sure I don't look like a fool in all outgoing correspondence but because I just see things in different ways like if you're a dyslexic person and you know you a large part of your day is is trying to avoid detection and so you you learn how to get people to do things that you that you want them to do and that as an adult that turns into leadership that's how it's felt to you as you that's really great yeah that's that's awesome people sometimes talk about the gift of dyslexia i think that's too far and i don't think it's helpful either because some some kids do not have the gift you know there's there's not much positive that comes from it but certainly the skills that you learn in learning to cope with dyslexia can hold you in, in great stead. You know, the the other thing, just many of your listeners will know this, it, it doesn't actually matter how dyslexic you are or any disability for that matter. It actually, the the greater impact is is how you feel about that. You know, that that's what makes the difference. So you can you can have mild dyslexia and really be dragged down by it or you can have quite profound dyslexia and just find ways around it. So I'm not putting judgment on on people, but mindset and self-image about whatever condition you have is just so, so important, and the evidence bears that out. And thinking a bit more about your brilliant brain, (laughs) you have discussed in your TED Talk the student-led learning concept, and you've you've referred to that a little bit already. 
the question I have for you is what does student-led learning actually mean and how will it resolve the problems of disengagement and exclusion for neurodivergent students? Because that's the problem we're really dealing with is the disengagement that happens and the obviously exclusionary practices because of behaviour. Really, we've got the whole formula wrong in education because, as I said, we're trying to we're using it as a sorting mechanism for who's got the best performance on a really narrow band of of skills. So we've the the system is set up wrongly. The the other thing that I always used to say to students and and to staff is whose education is this? Like you know, people used to say to me, "What are your marks like this year?" And I've gone, "I didn't sit." <laughs> You know, yeah. like it's, they're not my marks. They're the young person's marks. Like my job is to create a learning environment that that supports young people to do the best that they can in a particular circumstance. But the, I don't own those marks. Like seventy percent of it's genetic anyway. Yeah, exactly. like that, that's the that's yeah. the you know the inconvenient truth. And another interesting little tidbit of of information. Students are only at school, if they sleep eight hours a day, they're only in class for 17% of their waking hours and at school for 22% if you include lunch and recess. So to hold teachers accountable for students' marks is a bit of an overstretch, I would suggest. But getting back to your question, you can see I don't think in linear ways. It's okay. I'm trying to follow you. (laughs) (laughs) It's a hard task. You're doing better than most. But... You know, student-led learning essentially means that the young person makes decisions in their own best interests. And so we had a rule that was called yes is the default. And essentially that means that any person, student, staff or parent, who wanted to change the way they experienced education within the school, the answer had to be yes. It wasn't up for discussion. It didn't have to be referred through a committee as long as it didn't take too much time too much money or negatively impact on somebody else. So it was called the yes is the default rule, was actually recognised by Finland as one of the uh, 100 most innovative education concepts in the world at the time. You know, but but doesn't it make perfect sense? Why, why should I, like if it's not going to take any more of the staff time, it's not going to take too much of the school's money and it's not going to hurt anyone else, what right would I have to say no to a young person, even if I don't think it's a good idea because it's their education? It logically makes sense and we knowing our kids and how they are and also, I mean, I guess I see parallels with the whole behaviour sanctions type approach, you know, that concept of not giving them a merit or not giving them a demerit and what watching what will happen, you feel like you're being very brave to sort of take that away because it's your crutch. It's what you've always done. It's the way you've always done things. But actually kids are motivated, and um, particularly neurodivergent kids are, are, are often motivated in different ways. And so I guess you're taking away that way we've always done it, like you were saying. Did you have like a light bulb moment where you sort of tried it out or did you you know how did you come about giving this student-led concept an actual putting it into practice yeah look it's 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 an interesting question was there a light bulb moment there there was I I was running a uh, an army cadet unit you know it had 90 students in it and I watched these young people and I watched these young people put together a training program for like 24 hour a day training program for like 90 students planning everything from like the logistics, you know, food training program, dealing with the, you know, the personal issues, dealing disciplinary issues, et cetera, et cetera, everything that, you know, you can think of in a camp and doing, to be honest, a better job than most adults that I'd seen running camps in a school context. And then, so I just saw this like incredible self-organized community of young people. And then I went back to school like the next week and I was walking down the corridor and I saw these same leaders, you know, who had shown incredible maturity, dedication, massive skill sets. And I, I see them sitting behind a desk while some teacher is standing at the front just talking at them. They've got their hand on their face, you know, like almost like smearing their cheek up to the top of their head, just total disengagement. And I've gone, this is insane. We, wow. we literally have to flip this system so that young people are in charge of their own learning. 
And when I had the opportunity to do that, just a little fact, we had 98% parent satisfaction, 98%, not percentile, you know, two, only two out of, a, out of 100 parents who were not either happy or very happy. And that's amazing in a school of over 1,000, and that was at Temple State College. The student satisfaction, it's actually harder to keep students satisfied than parents apparently, but that was around <laughs> sort of, you know, 91%. But currently, our, our kids in Australia are the third most disengaged in the OECD, the third most disengaged, you know, thank goodness for France and the Slavic Republic, because we're, we're the only country where our kids are, you know, more engaged than those countries. And yet we continue to ramp up standardized testing, compliance, conformity. How long do you have to keep doing something before you realize that you've got to change the formula? Very good question. And my question back to you about that is you've just said that parents were very happy with it. Students, I mean, 91%, they were very happy. Where, what are the fears? What are the barriers? Uh, is it where is that coming from? Why don't if if this is the case that that everyone was so happy and it, everything was working so well and it was just a complete flip of what the normal way of doing things was? Why aren't why aren't there more Templestowe colleges? What are they scared of? I, I do wonder why there aren't. To be to be honest, the department were very reluctant to acknowledge the success of that we had at the school, and not everything worked. I'm not it wasn't Nirvana by any means, but but I think we'd found some pretty good solutions to disengaged young people. And like I can tell you, before we started on this journey, the data was horrendous. So, you know, I, there was only one direction and that was up. But I think because the department, it wasn't their idea, they hadn't thought about it. Mm. So nobody wanted to embrace it because they weren't going to get the accolades. Like if you're a bureaucrat, right, and I don't say that in a demeaning way, but if you're a bureaucrat, there is no advantage in you to approve anything other than the status quo because if it works, you're not going to get the glory and if it goes wrong, you're going to wear the consequences. So the whole system is actually set up to reinforce doing the same thing and people are just risk averse and look, that's not a you know that's not an unhealthy thing. We, we want to be risk adverse but we shouldn't do it when we know. Like the possibility of success by trying something new to me, is infinitely superior to the certainty of failure, which is what we've got at the moment. Like I can enrol a young person and I've done this and, and I've looked at them and they come in and they're cheerful and they're optimistic and they're, you know, so looking forward to secondary school. They, they haven't had a great time at primary and they've, they know about these things called electives and they think it's going to be wonderful. And to be honest, I could, I could tell, I could predict which kids the system was going to work for. And this is even at Templestowe with the flexibility that we had. But I could pretty much pick those kids who were going to be successful and from those that weren't. And, and in the end, as I became more emboldened and you know, arguably more experienced as a principal, I would, I would take those parents aside and say, look, this is what I see in the future. What do you think? And they would go, oh, well, it happened with their brother, you know, or their sister or whoever it was. And they said, but we can't do anything. And, and I would say, well, who says we can't? Because I'm not going to tell anyone. If you're not going to tell anyone, let's come up with our own individual program. And those those kids were then able to go on and achieve some amazing things and, and retain their positivity about school. But the system doesn't reward that sort of thinking. In fact, it actively it actively punishes divergence. Oh, so, it's so disappointing. It's just... <laughs> Well, yeah. the good news, if I might give you some good news, because I hate, I hate sort of, you know, presenting a problem and not a solution. The Future Schools Alliance, of which um, I started at the um, recommendation of, a, of an amazing educator called Professor Yong Zhao, who would have to be, well, he is one of the, the most well-recognised and respected educators in the world. And he'd, he'd come and looked at TC and we've, we've written up in many of his books and so on. And he said, look, Peter, having one school is great having 10 schools would be better. And so that was actually what led me to leave and then start the future schools. And, you know, we started with 10 or we started actually with five five schools. That's now grown to just on 100 schools. And they're schools that are, they're not all like super innovative, but they're wanting to explore what future, future-focused education would look like. And, and they're willing to sort of play with ideas and learn more because you can't, 
it's inappropriate to flip a school overnight, but but you've got to build, you know, the capacity of the staff to cope with these sorts of things. And that's what we try and do with, with the future school. But the good news is we're actually looking to try and start our own network of schools in 2023, ideally in Melbourne, and they will be amongst the most innovative schools in the world. So that's what we're that's what we're aiming for. So if any of your listeners, you know, just reach down the back of the couch and find a sly $3 million, please get in touch because <laughs> um, that's the barrier that we currently have to, to creating a new system of, of independent schools, low slash no fee independent schools that will change the life for neurodiverse young people. Well, that's very exciting. We'd like that in New South Wales as well. I mean, there are, I do see other schools popping up that have these different models that seem to be more progressive. And so that's, that is good. And, and that's what we have. I mean, I know I personally advocated that to the federal education minister and mentioned Templestowe College, even though I hadn't met you yet, um, because, you know, people are talking about these progressive models that are moving to the future and that's great and we want to encourage that. And, and look, the, re- the reality is it should be an, an option that's available for every young person. Yes, it yes. Sh- it shouldn't be only those who can afford, you know, private school fees or anything like that. It should be available to every every young person and it's a crime that it's not. We spend way too much. Like it doesn't require more resourcing. Like the Templestone model actually ran more cheaply than than a normal state school did so it's not a case of we need more money to do it but we need more flexibility in terms of the programming within schools we've, we've only got like you know depending on the day 20 26 million people in this country you know we're not we're not a, a population of a billion people we need every one of our young people to be a success because if not not only is it a immoral that we that we we can know when we enrol our young people, and particularly those that are neurodivergent, in school, we can pretty much predict the success rate. And yet we're prepared to, as a society, accept that we know that we're going to fail a certain proportion of young people. And they, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, you know, young people with disabilities, etc. And yet we can, we don't, we don't yell at our politicians. We don't, we don't write to our local members and, and demand and insist that that it's that it's every young person's right to to a high quality education that's engaging and meaningful and appropriately adapted for their for their wants and needs oh god yeah sorry <laughs> keep going it, just, it literally oh. it literally just floors me that we can you know that we can front up every day you know vote in in whatever it is election knowing that we're going to fail probably upwards of 40% of young people it's just not acceptable Totally. I, I, two things. I have watched people come into our community of, you know, to, to, to talk about what's happening with their kids. They've got kindy kids aged between, you know, sort of four and seven years old. And I have personally watched mums talking to me and, and telling me, oh, the first suspensions happened. Oh, you know, and, and the, the, I just, it's like watching a train wreck. It's mm-hmm. like watching a train wreck. You just know exactly what's going to happen. It starts happening and you're just sitting there feeling and that's what really drives me to do what I'm doing. Mm. Second thing is I am so desperate for our community to start doing what you just said, which is writing to the MPs. I actually literally, I tweet, I post temp, uh, templates and I try and get people to write I give them the addresses of who to write to and I'm about to do a survey of postcodes I really want to ramp this up so I'm so glad you just said that Mm. because I hope people are listening and thinking yes I want to do something and get involved if we don't start speaking up no one else is going to so sorry yeah absolutely and look the the other thing is I, I feel like it is important but that's a very slow burn you know like if if you've got a young you know, person who's neurodivergent, that's a, that's a long-term turnaround. And that's why, like, to be honest, like the people that are working with us on this notion of the future school, you know, we've got some very, very big names backing this as a concept. And there's nothing to stop us starting one of these schools in Sydney. They're relatively low cost. You know, they're, they're socially equitable because we plan to enrol, you know, 55% of people from low or no income backgrounds because they're the ones that are most disadvantaged, um, you know, and, and persecuted by the the current system but we we can start these schools 
and and you know like i've got a roundabout at the end of my street going in and it's like 3.05 million dollars and we're looking for 3 million dollars you know from a philanthropic or it could be a single donor who just you know is tired of the education system we can create these schools we've got the leadership we've got the staff who can lead them you know essentially i i think we've got to create our own system rather than trying to change the system you're right you're right and it would be you know i often sit here and think and say none of this is going to happen in my lifetime. It feels like such a huge hurdle, but I don't want to stop doing it. And you're right, it is a slow burn, but this would happen faster and would give access to, to kids, you know, at least in the next few years. So You can start a school in, in 18 months. Wow. Let's do it. We've got the formula. We know how to do it. All we need is the funding and then we're in business. Right. How exciting. So this all came about, my question was going to be about how did the Future Schools Alliance start, but you've explained that. Um, so you you started the Future Schools Alliance. You're now looking at um, opening up these schools. What else? Let, let me say that's keeping me keeping me. Yeah, I'm sure that's keeping you very busy. Is there anything I've the missed? <laughs> yeah. Look, I, you know, I guess that's why we've got so much support for this concept. Like it hasn't to be honest, you know, your your listeners are the first ones to actually hear of this publicly. Like the Future Schools Network know about these series of schools. You know, we're going to largely structure the curriculum around entrepreneurship and social impact because that's what that's what drives young people these days. They're like, you know, yeah. I, I it frustrates me when when I hear people running down young people and saying the world's going to hell and so on. Like this this generation is so powerful and so morally righteous compared to some of the generations to be honest that have gone before that they will save the planet but they need to be supported to do it and I'd, i just want to try and i guess how would you say capture some of their energy their enthusiasm and and allow them to build their education around that like the to be honest the the traditional education system was built for a bygone era we still have to cover it off there's no way that you can be a registered school and not do that but really you can cover that in about two hours a day now that leaves you a lot of other time and these particular schools we're actually planning on opening them for 365 days a year imagine that as a concept now that doesn't mean that the young people will be at school for 365 days that we we basically couldn't cope if they were but there will be the facilities will be open and there will be caring, capable, responsible adults there to support young people when they need or if they're running their businesses to give them access to materials, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, it's it's insane that in this day and age we still structure the school year around somebody needing to come home and plough the, the paddock because that's why we have such long summer summer breaks. We know that oh. kids that come from disadvantage, their, their results dip enormously through the holidays because, you know, they might not have books in the home or, you know, nobody speaks English in the home and, 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 and so on. So, you know, if, if we really want to make, you know, like Australia is the richest country in the world, you might not, you know, it's not known, but if you measure it by median wealth, the, the, the median wealth of the average person, it is higher than any country in the world. Surely if there's anyone that should have like a, a, a world-class, top-notch education system that almost doesn't allow a young person to fail, without their conscious effort to do so. It should be Australia. We should we should be that that nation. And and like it would pay for itself exponentially in terms of, you know, reducing drain on the on the welfare system, on uh, the justice system. Oh, hundred percent. You know, medical, etc. The prison system. Why don't we do it? Is my question. You sound like you want to do it. We've just got to get more and more people on board to put the pressure on the government to make it happen. Find Absolutely. the money and yep. um, and start it and just do it. Like you, know, I can tell you, just a just do it person, which is what we need more of that. I wanted. I've got two more questions for you, but the first one relates to the Future Schools Alliance. Um, I have noticed that there are a number of schools with membership. And I noticed on your website you could be a member. I just wanted to ask you what that's about because I've actually I was in the, I was in the office of my own son's school the other day and saw the Future Schools Alliance poster up on the wall, and I just thought, oh wow, okay. So what does it mean to be a member of the Future Schools Alliance? I, I, I essentially think that that the, our members and it's look it's a 
it's a signal to the community that you that that's the direction that you're wanting to go that you're starting to consider being more future focused in in your learning so some people use it as a as a signaling tool but right. there's a great and growing learning community of educators you know and we we run activities every week yeah. you know online where we hear from some of the most progressive educators in the world and and some of them are our own members you know they're doing exceptional things within their own school and we invite them to share that practice so some of them are well known like the biggest names in the world who in relatively small numbers you get to have a conversation with which i think is fantastic but you know, a, a number of the schools bring bring along, I was talking to a principal today, they've got a couple of their middle leaders who are not necessarily on board with the with the future way of doing things in education. And so they've they've given them a them a membership and they come along and listen. And gradually, drip feeding, we're actually making some progress so that they start to see that there are other ways. And that's what that's where we need to go. There are other ways of doing education that that are empowering, actually require less work. Like that's the it's the other irony, you know. Like we've got teachers leaving the profession in droves. You know, more than fifty percent leave in the first five years of teaching because it's a terrible job teaching. You know, if you've got to be a police person and you're punishing kids all day, you know that's not like you go into education to positively impact young people's lives, and all of a sudden you feel like you're a youth detention worker. You know, and the money's not that good. So you just get out. Whereas, you know, when you're in a when you're in a school that's, you know, essentially built on the empowerment of young people and and the empowerment of staff, it's an awesome place to work. Young people are like great to be around until you tell them to do things that make no sense, like learn things that are not relevant. You know, they get a bit stroppy. Yeah. Oh well, I, I live with I live with two, so I totally know <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> Yours are grown up, remember. I'm yeah, still doing right. it. Um, yeah, and it's it's like hot and cold. Yeah, it can be amazing and then it can also be a nightmare. I think the other thing that I – look, this is just a, an anecdotal experience, but, you know, for, for parents of neurodiverse kids, often you bear the brunt of that behaviour. Like kids are amazing at holding it together while they're at, while they're at school because they, they desperately want to try and appear normal, as I did, you know, as a dyslexic person, but – you know, particularly kids on the on the autism spectrum, etc. Like they hold it in, like it's a, it's remarkable. And then you know you can only hold that pressure in so long, and then they come home and they you know they melt down or they explode, you know. And so, oh, we know, we know. Don't you worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I know. It's it hard. Would be it's very many hard. parents' lived experience that we're talking about. And so that's why we have such empathy for teachers as well because we know that, you know, either the masking is happening like you were just describing or it's the other way around and the behaviour is happening at school. Mm. You know, either way it can go both ways but it's still perplexing and difficult to empathise with at the time and takes a great skill. Yeah, totally. We get it. Don't worry. And we are advocating so much and that's my final question for you is as parents are advocating at school and trying to work and re-educate the teachers every year about our kids and these concepts come along like what we've been discussing today and we want to help our schools to come on that journey and understand what you've been uh, explaining. How, what, what is your advice to parents, particularly if they're in a school that's very old school, if you like, and very traditional to try and get them, apart from getting them to join the Future Schools Alliance as a member, is do you have advice about the sorts of things they could maybe do to try and change things? I do, um, but you're not going to like it. You're going to say move schools. <laughs> I'm going to no. say move schools. No, you I am. Right. That's exactly yeah. what okay. I'm going to say. Like I know it's not the thing that people want to hear and you would love to believe, I would love to believe that my colleagues are open-minded and, and you know, open to change. But it depends on what sort of time frame you're wanting that change to occur. If it's in your child's lifetime, or certainly their school lifetime, they will—they're very resistant. Like we, we're trained, like to to deal with difficult parents, and essentially a difficult parent is anyone we don't agree with. So, like they'll—they'll they'll ameliorate you, they'll wait you out, they'll say all the right things, and then take no action. And and that doesn't speak well of of the profession. But I think any principals that are listening to this know that it's true, that leaders that are on board will listen and they will take action and they will do everything you want, 
But if you get the message that really you're just a nuisance and you're being sidelined, pack up your bag and find someone, find a school that is being led. And I, I have to say that the biggest difference is the leader in the school. Yeah. Like it's yeah. it's huge. You know, like the data says that teacher quality makes the most difference. My argument is the principal employs the teachers. That that school leadership, that cult, that will go through the culture. Try and try and if you are going to move, try and make sure that the person isn't, you know, about to leave in the next twelve months. But you know, if they're relatively new in their role, find find a principal that's accommodating and move is what I would say. Got to be mobile these days. You know, don't in don't hold hold the school lightly, and also don't. The other thing is to to remind your young person that school success in school is not hugely correlated with success in life. You know, you might have to just get through school, but to me it's all about learning confidence and and you know self self awareness but but growth. Don't don't leave education to the school, not in its current format. Really, I noticed that one of the things that you are very passionate about is alternate pathways into tertiary, whatever's going to happen after school. And I'm now passionate about that too, because I've seen what happens when you do kind of rely on the school too much or don't know what what your options are. And yeah, it's a it's one that I would definitely focus on more in the future. Well, here, here's a little statistic for you. Open question to, to your listeners. What percentage of people entering an undergraduate degree use their ATAR to do so? So of all those people that enter an undergraduate degree, what percentage use their ATAR? In a, in a pre-COVID world, it was 26%. In the last two years, it's been under 20%. Wow. So, you know, the first thing is it's a nonsense. So don't be defined by it. The other thing is, University, to be perfectly honest, is wasted on the young. It's not the pinnacle that everybody makes it out to be. But if you are wanting to go to uni, I would strongly advocate going out and getting some life experience first, then going to uni. And you only have to be out of out of school for two years and have done something. You can't just be playing Xbox. But if you're out of school for two years, you're automatically a mature age student. Yeah. <laughs> so then use the back door use that back door into into the tertiary course of you, of your choosing. I love hearing you say that. It's so comforting. I could just sit here and let you say that to me all night. <laughs> <laughs> because I learnt, but I learnt the hard way that, that you are so 100% right. There's so much talk in our community about these different pathways and we've got to stop holding on to what we did. And I'm, totally. I'm an absolute, I'm an absolute um, victim of that. Uh, is there any? Do you have any sort of mentors or resources or anyone apart from you mentioned this Professor Yong Zhao? Obviously, someone you look up to. Is there what what drives you, or is there anything we can do reading on? Or the the other person who I hold in enormous esteem, and and there are thought. Well, there's a couple actually, but pa, um, Parsi Solberg, Professor Parsi Solberg. You know who who was a Finnish educator of, of huge note um, and has now become an Australian citizen. Probably most famous book is Let the Children Play, which is a great. I would certainly advocate um, people read that book. He is an exceptional educator who really gets it. There's something else that I'd like to say, and that's to any educators that are listening to this. I I do not want to give the impression that I am not a huge respecter of people who are working in this profession, like. I know the conditions that they face. I know the complexity. But the, the, the biggest thing is I also know the restrictions that you're working under. And I, I often have, be they teachers or principals, et cetera, system leaders going, but what do I do? You know, and they, they look to the Minister for Education or they look to their regional director or their principal, et cetera. And there's this tendency to sort of like pass the problem up to, to other people and, and, and make them responsible for the change what i say is as a as an educator no matter what your position in the the horrible hierarchy you've got to learn to maximize what opportunities you can for change so you know within your sphere of influence really lean into that what do you think you might be able to get away with you know we we talk to educators about this concept of being comfortable dancing in the gray and what I mean by that is all regulation, there's black and there's white, but in every regulation, there's gray space. 
So, you know, educators generally, because they like school, don't like and are not familiar with being in trouble. And that's a really destructive characteristic. They don't like being in trouble, so they play it safe. And can I say, New South Wales is the home of compliance and this fear of getting a slap from NASA, etc. And so become comfortable dancing in the grey. And, yeah, you'll be called on to justify yourself, but, you know, as I said to the person that was in charge of me, you can't get rid of incompetent people. We're not going anywhere. You know, like the, the reality is you've got to do something pretty bad to lose your job. Become comfortable, you know, really exploit what you think. Like I'm not talking about being, you know, doing anything immoral or illegal, far from it. But if it's in the best interest of young people, flex away. And give it a go. Take the opportunity. We, we work in an, in an unnecessarily isolated system. But, you know, as somebody said, and I love this saying, when the door closes, the classroom, you are the education department. You know, it's just you, you know, and happy kids don't complain. They won't rat you out. You know, like if they're enjoying their learning and you're treating them well, they are not the ones that are going to be complaining and they will, you know, and they'll be more pleasurable to teach. You'll, you'll actually get better results. Yeah, exactly. And then you really will have people off your back and you'll be able to continue and then maybe have some job satisfaction, which is what teachers tell us they don't get because they're so burnt out and fearful of what's going to come next. The the fear is often imagined, I've got to say. It's It's more imagined than it is real. Do you think it's a confidence thing then? Definitely. And and also because, you know, we, we watch each other. Like the, the actual cultural definition is that it's a compliant, dependent culture. But when, you know, we, we all become more and more conservative and, and we're just sort of spiralling, you know, to becoming more compliant, more rule following. There are some great educators out there like, you know, Mike Saxon, you know, hats off to him, um, Tim out at, at at Plumpton High, you know, like these people are recognised as, you know, top principals in the system, like they're award, award-winning, award you know, principals in the system and, boy, they flex the rules and they're, and they're rewarded for it. Uh, yeah, but we need them to be standing up, up and teaching yep. the other, yeah, held up, held up and and showing everyone else that this yep. is how it's done. And look, Greg Miller, St Luke's, Marsden Park, one of the greatest schools out there, like... Currumbina, there are actually some really good schools in New South Wales. Linfield. Yeah, so I was wondering whether you um, knew about them. Yeah, no, I know them well. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much. I mean, is there anything else that you, you would love people to, you've told us some fantastic information. I'm very excited um, for people to hear, but is there anything else? Look, you know, and and this could be, uh, you know, called advertising or a selfish plea or anything like that, but sometimes there is just that one person out there that's listening and goes, this makes sense, and they have the capacity, financial capacity, to make an impact. If that happens to be you, contact Louise, she'll hook us up. But, you know, realistically, the only thing stopping us from making this a reality, and and within a very short time frame, is essentially the, the funding to do so. Yep. Our community are desperate. We are desperate. You know, we, we've just talked about all these schools. You wouldn't know it when, when you hear our people talking about what's going on for them in their lives with their schools, particularly in the regional areas. It's really quite sad. So I'm sure that with so much sort of need, huge need and people so becoming so passionate and that's what I'm trying to create is people who are, have got some drive and passion to try and force the change to happen and speak up and have a say in this because we are all taxpayers, we are all voters Absolutely. and, and we have an election coming up yep. and things like that so we can really um, try and do something about this and that's what I'm all about anyway. So. Yep. Yeah, let's hope there's someone listening that can do something. And look, just just the reassurance to to parents that it's not them. It's actually not you that's crazy. It's the system. You know, there's nothing. That is wrong. reassuring. There's actually nothing wrong with your child. It, they're just they're just on on a spectrum of of just difference. Yep. You know, yep. so there's nothing there's nothing wrong. They don't need to be fixed, but their needs do need to be accommodated. And we can do it. Like there's enough money in the system to do it. We just need to apply it differently. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
Well, let's hope we can do more and more of that in the future. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I'm I'm thrilled that you came on and agreed to talk to me today. Thank you so much, Peter. Really, really do appreciate it. Most welcome, Louise. It's it's been a pleasure. I always, as I, as I said at the start, no favourite animal, but I just love talking about education. So you, <laughs> yeah, you've you're... met my needs as well. You've got a hyper focus like me, which is which is a good thing. We need more people like us to do this <laughs> and Absolutely. make it happen. Okay, well, this is a bit where the music starts, so I'll sign us off now. If you can just hang on there for a second, Peter. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. See you later. Acknowledgements. Thank you to Carla Cushell of Carla Cushell Creative for the podcast logo and the website. Editing by Matt Cushell. Images and episode quotes are the work of Jazzy C. Music is also by Jazzy C. Finally, a big thank you to my friends and family for encouraging me. As always, thank you to my partner in everything, Ash Cushell. And remember, just be nice to one another.